Father, how good to be together as your local church this morning. How encouraging to be reminded of these great truths of our salvation and your faithful love for us. Father, thank you for the great Thanksgiving holiday weekend that we've just so enjoyed and we're blessed beyond measure. No greater blessing do we have than our salvation in Christ and then the great ability to meet freely like this and take our Bibles and to study it together and to let you work through it in our lives. So Father, speak to us, use this time, challenge us, change us, encourage us and strengthen us, I pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Jonathan and I were up in Preston County at uh, Aunt Shirley's farm where we deer hunt each year. They're beef farmers, and I was reminded of an incident in my own life through a circumstance this past week when I helped dispose of a cow that was very sick on the farm, and my 14-year-old son didn't know what to think of that. When you don't live in the country, you're not around that kind of thing, and I remembered being on Grandpa's farm when I was about seven years old, going up to northern Wisconsin with my father to help butcher and watching them shoot a steer and prepare it for butchering. And my little eyes were as wide as saucers. I had never seen anything like that, this South Chicago suburb little child. Stunning. Shocking. And you don't know what to think. It's a little bit the emotion, I wonder, of 12-year-old boys or all the adults even, of that great story. You don't have to turn there. It's in Numbers chapter 16. I want you to imagine being a witness of something that you had never seen before that would be so shocking and so violent in a way. It was when Korah and his buddies teamed up and came and got in Moses' face. Do you remember that? Moses' brother Aaron was the the priest. These were assistants. They were part of the Levites' One of the things they accused Moses and Aaron of is is with a pride-based decision-making of elevating themselves above the people and appointing themselves to be God's spiritual leaders. Moses was shocked by their affront. You can read the story in Numbers 16. It's an incredible story. Moses speaks back to Korah. He says to them, listen, If your words are true and I am not God's appointed man to spiritual leadership, then you meet me here tomorrow and we will will burn incense before the Lord. And if you burn the incense that only the appointed priests were to burn, if you burn it, it would have been inappropriate for Korah and the men to do that. There were 250 men assembled with Korah. Moses said, if we burn the incense and you grow old and die of natural causes, then your words are true. In other words, if God stands by and watches and there's no consequence to you messing with God's appointed leadership, then you're right and I'm wrong. They assemble. They light the incense. God is now enraged. God says to Moses, tell everybody to back away from their tents. I've had it with them. Can you imagine being a... A 12-year-old boy watching these men. Moses hollers out, everybody get away from their tents. At least 250 of them gathered. They stand before their tents, Korah does, and his cohorts. Their wives and their children are with them. And the ground opens up. They fall in and the ground closes on them. And you're like, whoa. I never saw anything like that before. And I'm not really sure what I think about it. One of the great lessons that we get from number 16 in that incident that is recorded is that God really cares about who his spiritual leaders are. And that it is a very serious thing to be involved in spiritual leadership of God's people. It's with that sense of emotion that I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. As we continue to study through 1 Timothy, we will be leaving it soon for our Christmas series. and We will wrap it up in fairly short notice following the new year, Lord willing. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and today for our text, we want to pick it up from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. And you need to know that what Paul is writing to Timothy about, the young pastor at this church at Ephesus, where there's a number of issues 
Not the least of which was who's going to be the spiritual leaders, who's qualified. We spent all summer in chapter 3 talking about how much God cares about the qualifications of a spiritual leader in his local church and to lead his people. In this passage, he's going to deal with our attitude towards our elders and our pastors, and he's going to to deal particularly with the matter of what do we do in the church when a pastor or an elder sins. Remember that our motivation for our study is that we would understand God's will for the local church. We're taking a study that's a couple thousand years old, and we're using the Apostle Paul's words to young Timothy and his application to his church in Ephesus to apply it to the church in Shenandoah Junction that we might have insight, we're not going to burn incense, but that we would have insight into how God wants his local church run. And nothing is of greater importance in the local church than who the spiritual leaders are. Let's read our text and And then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you six words. They all begin with R. Six words to help us organize our thoughts through the passage. With each word, I'm going to give you a specific question that fits with that section of our study. 1 Timothy 5, beginning with verse 17, Paul says to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Verse 19, do not admit or accept a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. It's an interesting passage of Scripture, and a cursory reading of it is not so impacting. But when you begin to break it down and you look at it, you recognize how much God cares about the integrity of spiritual leadership in the local church and over his people, and how we are to esteem them, and how we are to handle them, and how we are to confront them when they sin. Word number one is the word respect. Respect. Notice as he begins the text, 1 Timothy 5, 17, that we read verse 17, and we recognize right away that it is, a, it is about honoring those who are in leadership, spiritual leadership over us. Let the elders who rule well... Okay, they're to be hardworking, they're to be good managers. This, by the way, rule well, is the same exact word that's used and translated, they must manage their homes well in chapter 3, verse 4, that we studied this summer under the qualifications of an elder. He has to rule well over his household. And those who rule well over the church are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The first thing that we see is that this is a verse about respect. And we're to, we're to elevate and honor those who are spiritual leaders over us. The question that comes to my mind that fits in right here is this question. Why should we honor our spiritual leaders? Why should we honor our spiritual leaders? It's an interesting question. It's not a new concept for the Apostle Paul to teach the churches to watch to emulate and to honor the leadership of their churches. Let me give you three quick reasons why we should honor our spiritual leaders. The first one is just back a few pages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it begins with verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. If you would turn there quickly, it's only back four or five pages in your Bible. Um, And this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers, the, the believers in Thessalonica, And he says in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, We ask you, brothers, 
Okay, Paul telling the believers there, we ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you. The word labor there has the idea of working to the point of exhaustion. It goes, should go without saying, but let me say, say it, there's no room in the local church for lazy pastors, lazy elders. Those who labor in the Lord and admonish you, in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then be at peace among yourselves. The first reason that the Apostle Paul wants us to respect and honor our elders, and he's talking here, I think, particularly about, in the context, those elders that it's their profession to be in ministry full-time. The work of the ministry is demanding enough in certain churches that it demands that men be set apart and identified to be the full-time elders, the full-time pastor, teachers, leaders, managers of the ministry. And so it's not saying that they're more valuable necessarily or more important but they are to be honored and esteemed because of their labor in the Word of God. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Notice what he says. They're to be respected, honored doubly because, especially those who labor and teach the Word of God. It's not that we would disrespect an elder that doesn't do as much teaching, but those who are over us to teach and preach God's Word, the Apostle Paul points out, that that is the first reason I want you to honor them. Reason number one, their faithful ministry of the Word of God. Their faithful ministry of the Word of God. I was thinking back of men who were pastors in my life who faithfully ministered the Word of God. And I think that it's a little bit um, like the trusses. I've said this before, the trusses or the rebar in our concrete. It's like they're there. We don't really see them. We don't pay too much attention to them. But if they ever give way... It has huge consequence in our lives. I think that pastors and quality spiritual leadership are like that. We tend to take them for granted. They're just kind of there. They're doing their job. We forget how much our, the stability of our lives depends upon godly spiritual leadership in our lives. We need that. It's one of the most important things about us, who our pastor is. I was thinking about my dad, for one thing. I grew up under the ministry of my father in, in two different small Bible churches of about 80, 80 people or so in southern South Chicago, uh, in the suburbs of South Chicago. And then uh, um, my high school years in southern Michigan in a little Bible church there of 60 or 70 people. And the faithful ministry of my father and how my life is so much like his in the sense that I can do nothing but preach the word because of the power of Christ and the reality of the gospel. I got that from my father. If the Bible's true and the resurrection is true, and and it is, then we have no other hope, we have no other option, Van, than to just keep preaching the word. I learned a faithfulness from my father. I was thinking about when I went off to Bible college, to Appalachian Bible College, and went to Beckley Regular Baptist Church there for several years, and how impacting it was in those formative years between 19 and 22 in those years. And our pastor was Dudley Morgan and his wife Phyllis. And I just, it just makes me smile to say their name today. I just love Phyllis and Dudley. He's still in the ministry. He's had some health problems. But at that time, Dudley, he was just, he was a hoot. He would get up and we had opening Sunday school class uh, in the auditorium, uh, opening uh, program. What am I trying to say? Yeah, exercises. That's the Sunday school word. Opening exercises is the word. And the whole congregation would gather in the church and, and Pastor Morgan would get up front and sometimes he would have a story for the kids or whatever. And then he would say something like this as he dismissed us off to class. He would say, now you pray for me. He said, I'm not sure what I'm going to preach this morning. I got a couple messages going around in my head. The Lord will show us what to do. We're going to have a great time in the word together. Well, he was always prepared. He always had challenging messages. He was just the right pastor for me at that age. Just be enthusiastic about the word of God, the way he loved his people, the way he loved his wife and his children. He would have us Bible college students in his home. He would drag us around Lake Stevens behind his boat on skis, just a highly impacting role of a godly pastor in my life. And his ministry of the word was so valuable. 
I left Bible college and went to Huntington and did a one-year internship there. And I was always real busy in the morning with youth ministries and the morning services. And then the evening service that they had, I loved it. And in that one year, God used those evening services under the preaching of the word by Pastor Bill Rudd to highly impact my life. If there's a pastor I want to preach like, it's Pastor Bill Rudd because of sitting under his ministry. How valuable that was. We honor, I honor those guys to this day. When I think of Dudley Morgan and I think of Bill Rudd, I think, man, those guys are way up there. Because why? Because of their faithful ministry of the word in my life. What a blessing to have pastors who will faithfully minister the word in your life. Turn to Hebrews and and let's pick up just a couple more notes real quick on why we should honor and respect our pastors, especially those who are involved in the preaching and teaching of the word in our lives. Hebrews 13, it wasn't too long ago we visited these verses, but let's remind ourselves of Hebrews 13, 7. Why should we respect our spiritual leaders? First of all, their faithful ministry of the word of God. The second reason that I think Paul has this in mind and wants us to doubly honor them is their helpful modeling, their helpful modeling of the Christian life. Look at verse 7. He says to the, this is not Paul, but this is the writer of the Hebrews. We don't know who it is. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. I have to tell you, I wanted to have the kind of faith that Dudley Morgan had and Bill Rudd had. I tried to emulate that. I wanted to be around those guys. One of the reasons you're to honor those who preach and teach the word of God to you is their helpful modeling of the Christian life. It was so valuable to be in their homes, to see how they did things, to watch them manage and administrate the church and their lives and families. Let your eyes go down to Hebrews 13, 17. And the third reason that we should honor our elders and our spiritual leaders, especially those who deliver the word to us faithfully, is number three, their fearful duty, their fearful duty of watching over your soul. Obey your leaders, verse 17, Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What a fearful duty for all of the elders. There's no greater responsibility of that than the one who has the pulpit the most. What a fearful duty. It's worthy of honor. The Apostle Paul, our first word, back to 1 Timothy 5, said, Let the elders, verse 17, who rule well, be worthy, considered worthy of double honor. We want to respect them. Why should we respect our spiritual leaders? Their faithful ministry of the word of God, their helpful modeling of the Christian life, and their fearful duty of watching over our souls. Word number two is reward. Notice in these verses that they are to be honored doubly. Double honor, it says. And so the question that comes out of this one is... What is meant by double honor? What does it mean by double honor? Are they supposed to get twice the pay? That's not what it means. It means that they are to have a greater level of respect. They're to have the highest level of respect among our elders. And that's often what happens, isn't it? You think of your pastors and the senior pastor and the ones who speak the word the most are the ones that has your heart the most, the one whose heart you know the most, and you honor him, you honor him. Your faithful pastors. And you can think of faithful pastors in other churches that you love. I can even name some of your pastors that you've told me about through the years and how much they impacted your lives. How valuable is that? Notice that Paul then will use an illustration from Scripture uh, for Timothy to further, uh, further demonstrate what is meant by double honor and the importance of rewarding or remunerating the pastors, especially those who speak the word. There is nothing wrong with having elders or pastors who are full-time paid salaried staff. They should be rewarded for their work in the ministry. That's appropriate and it's right. 
Their drive isn't for the money. Their drive is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the shepherding of the flock and their calling to ministry. But notice, Paul is going to use for Timothy uh, a quote from Scripture. He says at the end of verse 17, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says, connecting the thought with that, building on that, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. His first quote is from Moses from the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 4. And the idea there was Moses giving the law to the, to the Israelites. God instructed them through Moses that when you work your oxen and they're hitched up to a grist mill or a grinding mill and they're grinding grain and then there's a residual spill-off of grain, the, the oxen want to... I can just picture them. Can't you? Their big old tongue going out and, and grabbing a big pile of dust there and pile of grain... And so the farmer or the one who's grinding the, the grain is concerned this is his cash crop. And so he puts a muzzle on the ox to keep him from eating the grain so that none of it goes to waste. He can bag up all he can and then sell it. And Moses instructed them through the will of God and through the word of God, don't do that. The oxen's doing the work. He's grinding. Let him, let him lick up some, some grain. And if an oxen, the point is, if an oxen, while he's working, grinding the grain, ought to be able to be fed from the grain, then the minister of the gospel ought to be able to benefit and feed himself through the ministry of the word. And it's the, the idea there, and the honor, and honor in the Greek has a, a nuance of honorarium. It's a subtle way of the Apostle Paul addressing the financial care of the pastor. Don't muzzle the ox. Don't. Don't keep him so poor that he can't support himself. Let him partake. Take care of his needs. The second quote is kind of interesting because it comes from a quote that Jesus said. And it could have been floating around. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that it only came from Luke, but it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And it could have been known at this time in the church as a quote from Jesus. But it is interesting to think that the Apostle Paul quotes Luke and calls it Scripture. It's like a peer recognition that God was at work through the inspiration of His Holy Spirit through Luke's writing. And when he quoted Luke's record of Jesus' words, he's quoting the Scriptures. And it kind of gives credence. It gives credibility to Luke's writings that Paul would quote it as Scripture. And the quote is from Jesus that the laborer is worthy of his wages. And again, the idea, if an oxen is worth an oxen's working and it should be able to eat, how much more a servant who's getting paid wages, he gets, you have an arrangement, you have somebody work for you, a hired man in the field, somebody working your animals or whatever in this agri-centered culture and society, and you make an agreement that he's going to work for you for such a wage, when he's done, he's deserving of his wage. Let him pay his wage. And so how much more than the pastor is worthy of being remunerated in ministry. It's appropriate and good. There's other teaching of the Apostle Paul that supports this. 1 Corinthians 9 comes to mind. You don't have to turn there, but you can read that later. He goes to great length to argue to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that it was totally appropriate for him and his apostle to make his living with the gospel. It's not inappropriate for pastors to receive a paycheck from the church. So keep giving well. It does raise another little question, though, and that is, how do we know how much we should pay our pastors? How do we know how much we should pay our pastors? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The elders decide that, apart from counsel from the salaried pastors. They meet annually, do some form of an evaluation, do some form of overview and checking and making sure our needs are met. And I want to assure you that our guys do a very good job of, of making sure our needs are met. None of us are getting rich. I don't think there's any kind of uh, overinflated paychecks going around around here. But um, I think that they do a good job. And there's two thoughts that came to my mind that I thought I'm going to go ahead and share those with you because some of you might serve on a, on a board someday. And it might be helpful to you. I think that principle number one when you're paying a pastor or paying someone in full-time ministry is you want to pay them enough so they can do the work of the ministry without worrying about money. So that their needs are met enough so that every time they go home, their wife's not saying, will you go get a real job? So that every time he goes home, he can pay his bills. It doesn't mean that it's not like other people where some months the two ends are farther apart to come together. But by and large, your needs are met for health care, for food, for paying your bills, being able to go to the beach in the summertime for a week. So is he being paid enough 
to be able to focus on the work of the ministry and not have to worry about his bills. Second principle I think that is valuable is, and this is neither of these are from the Bible, they're just lessons learned in ministry, is I think that it's valuable to look at the mean income of the men that fit sort of the category of your pastors. The men about their age, about their experience, about their levels of responsibilities, and what the weight of, weight of responsibilities that they carry. The average man in your church, if he's making, you know, between 40 and 60,000 a year, then your pastor should make between 40 and 60 a year. It wouldn't be appropriate in a church where the average men are making between 40 and 60 a year for the pastor to make 80, 90, or 100 a year. That would not, that would not be in balance with that ministry. That's only going to create jealousies and envy. And you need to fit in with the people where you are. And that's appropriate. I think that's a helpful little rule of thumb. That's our second word. It's reward. What is meant by double honor? It means give them the highest respect. It's not that we don't respect all of our elders, but we respect them all. Our third word is refuse. Paul is now going to shift gears and he's going to go from honoring the pastor and elder to talk about what happens when an elder or a pastor sins. The word that we're going to keep in mind here is refuse. The question is, how do we deal with a sinning spiritual leader? How should we deal with a spiritual leader that we find out or hear is sinning or in sin? Let's read the text. He says in verse 18, don't muzzle the ox, the laborer is deserving of his wages. But then verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder. Admit in the ESV, the idea is there is receive, accept, or believe a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Isn't that interesting? A couple of observations just from reading the two verses that came to my mind. Three observations, in fact, is number one, that when, as Paul writes this, you have to realize the reality is that it is possible for pastors and elders to sin. It is possible. On two occasions in my lifetime, I have had the very difficult task of being present with a congregation as their pastor made public confession of their sin and walked out the door to leave the church because of being disqualified by sin. And then I was left with the congregation to bring a message and to try to encourage them and help them figure out what to do the next week. Those are very difficult times. Do you know that? Very difficult. But it is possible. I was tempted to copy off a couple of letters. I've read two different letters in the last six weeks, one more locally and one in the Midwest of well-known pastors who, because of sin, had to get out of their pulpits. How difficult that is. How difficult it is for the church. And Paul is going to give some insight here as to, okay, what do we do? But the first observation, it is possible. The second is that I want you to realize that because the Apostle Paul is addressing this, that it is not to be ignored. We're not to ignore an elder or a pastor or a spiritual leader who sins. And number three, it is a serious matter and it should be handled with great care. And you can sense that in how the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy. He says in verse 19 again, do not admit a charge against an elder. Don't accept it. In other words, that's our word here, refuse, refuse to hear an accusation against your spiritual leadership if it's only one person. Isn't that interesting? And I think that there's some simple, he doesn't doesn't give the exact reason why he puts it this way, but I think that Largely, it has to do with the idea of just safeguarding our pastors and our elders against false accusation. It's kind of a funny, the dark side of people. We all kind of have a dark side. You kind of like to see good people fall. Oh, yeah, look at that guy. That'll serve him, right? I love it when the Cowboys lose. I think Tony Romo stinks. Good, good. Oh, he got hurt? Teep, teep. Isn't there something on our dark side that people who've been at the top, people who are your leaders, people who are calling you to righteous living, 
People who are holding the standard. Oh, I, I saw. Oh, I. And not only that, there are personality conflicts. There are differences among people. And it's not that difficult probably to find one voice who would say, I don't like that guy. He really bugs me. It doesn't mean that that person's not speaking the truth. It could very well be that one person has seen something that is very serious and they're reporting it back to the elders about the pastor or to the pastors about an elder. But Paul says to safeguard the integrity of their ministry, to safeguard the purity of their lives, to safeguard their reputation, that if one person comes, don't hear it. Refuse to hear it. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, you watch you listen, you be very careful about going around to recruit people who want to find out something wrong with your pastor if it's serious enough. Obviously, you would want to go, if it's about the senior pastor, you would probably want to go to the chairman of the elder board and say, this is what I saw. I'm the only one who saw it, I think, that they would know it. The elder would have to be very careful about entertaining that accusation. And you would want to go to the pastor. The biblical model would be to go to him first and say, I saw you shoplifting peanut M&M's at Walmart. I know that's what I saw. You know, and let him explain himself or let him say, you know what, you caught me. And this is wrong. Or whatever, deal with it there. But one accusation is to be refused. You know that one of Satan's great schemes for disrupting the ministries of the local church is to create sin situations among the leadership. If Satan can get the leadership to fall, if Satan can get the pastors or the elders to sin in a manner that is open and public, it will totally destroy the reputation or it will work hard towards undermining the reputation of that church, the power of the gospel through that church in the community, and it is very likely to ruin the potential for ministry for that individual in the future. It's a serious matter. So notice what... The Apostle Paul says is supposed to happen. Our fourth word is rebuke. Rebuke. Our third word was refuse. How do we deal with a sinning spiritual leader? We do not entertain one voice. We wait for multiple voices. And our fourth word is rebuke. And the question is, why is a sinning spiritual leader to be dealt with publicly? The question is, why is a sinning spiritual leader to be dealt with publicly? Let's look at our text again. See what he says. As for those who persist in sin, okay, you're to have two or three witnesses, end of verse 19, and then verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so the rest may stand in fear. Now, it doesn't say it in the passage, but I would assume that we would apply other biblical principles of confrontation and reconciliation to the circumstances. A Matthew 18, for example, a Galatians 6, 1 through following verses, for example, that we would do it carefully, we would do it gently. And Matthew 18 shows us that if you have an, see an offense or a brother sins against you, you're to go to them one-on-one. And then if, you don't, if they don't deal with it one-on-one, then you're to go with somebody. That would be the multiple witnesses. And then ultimately, even under Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, it was to be dealt with openly in front of the congregation. In this situation, why would Paul make sure that Timothy, if there was indeed a sinning, faltering elder, and I would assume that the reason he's instructing this is there was in Ephesus and it needed to be be dealt with, and it was coming. And so, why do it publicly? He gives part of the answer in the passage. I'm going to give you three reasons why we would do this publicly for an elder or a spiritual leader, because it seems harsh, and it seems like it would be better for the church to keep it hush-hush. But actually, the, the exact opposite is what is true. Notice what he says again. He said, they persist, so I take it that it was an ongoing sin, the beginning of verse 20, as for those who persist in sin. So we've gone through the steps of confrontation. They have refused to humble themselves. They are continuing to sin. All right, And in both of those situations that I referenced earlier where I preached the message following the pastor's public confession and departure from his churches, in both of those situations, those men were confronted repeatedly and they repeatedly re-entered their sin points. Foolishly, ridiculously, and with great damage to their own ministry lives and to their churches. They persisted in their sin. 
Sin's like that, isn't it? Uh, You young people, listen to me for a minute. One of the great deceptions of Satan is this. Is there's this sin right there. And you say, I can handle it. I want to tell you, you heard it from your pastor. You cannot handle it. Remember what God told Cain. Sin is crouching at your door, waiting to devour you. You can't handle sin. It's insidious. It's permeating. It'll get you. It's got barbs on the hooks. And even pastors and elders, they, they foolishly, sin is so deceptive. I can handle it. I can handle it. He says, um, in verse 20 further, he says, so that the rest may stand in fear. Reason number one that we rebuke publicly and that an elder or a spiritual leader who sins is to be dealt with ultimately, who persists in their sin, dealt with openly, is number one, to create a fear of sin among A, the other elders, and B, the congregation. To create a fear of sin among the other leaders and the congregation. You know, fear is a good fence, isn't it? Fear is a good motivator to, to clean up your act. I always get a kick out of thinking about my dad. He talked tough. He wasn't. He was a, a loving, gentle pastor, really. He just liked to talk tough. And we were having some problems on our camp property. And he talked about putting up a wire across there and hanging some shotgun shells on it and putting a sign up saying, anyone seen here at night will be seen here in the morning. <laughs> and I thought, Yeah. And so, you know, the guy sneaking through the night with his flashlight, I'm not messing with these people. You know, it's the sign that says, beware of the big dog with the big teeth. Get off my property. Fear is a motivator. Paul says, one of the reasons you're going to deal with this publicly is so that there will be a fear in the hearts of the others. He doesn't define others. I think he's first and foremost talking about the other spiritual leaders. But I think the application is clear to the entire congregation. How would you like to be a pastor? Have to stand up before your congregation. He doesn't say how to do this. A called meeting, a Sunday morning communion service, to have to stand up and say, or to have the chairman of the elders say, if the pastor has even stayed around or fled in cowardice and lack of confession, I have sinned and I've failed my family, I've failed my church. I think living in fear of that moment is very helpful. When the congregation sits there and observes and says, man, if our pastor can do that, I could do that. I'm afraid. I don't want to be like that. The second reason is that this safeguards the church's reputation and reduces gossip. To deal with this publicly, number two, Paul doesn't say this. I'm just telling you that the reality of these kinds of things is is that they tend to be very difficult, gut-wrenching, and messy. There's almost no good way for a church to have to confront a sinning spiritual leader for it to just go smoothly. Well, that wrote really well today. What it does is it reduces, though, it, it safeguards the reputation of the church and it reduces gossip. You know that people hear things, don't you? And you know that people like to repeat what they hear. Did you hear about the church over there that did, and their pastor? And I, I'm shocked. Can you believe it? What you and don't tell any. Hey, don't tell any. Don't tell anybody, but I'll tell you. Don't tell anybody, but I'll tell. Don't tell anybody, but I'll tell you. And the next thing you know, the whole community knows, right? What's been going on? How much wiser it is to deal with it openly in the house, in front of the people, so that you undermine the ability for gossip to take place. Everybody needs to know what's going on here. First of all, we want to put the fear of sin in you. The second thing we want to do is we want to take away any misunderstanding. We want you to know what happened. The third reason is to ensure that there is no duplicity among the leadership. And Paul does reference this in verse 21. Look what he says. He says, In the presence of God and Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. What does he mean here? He said, look, Timothy, I know that you're going to have to do this with these elders, these wolves in sheep's clothing at Ephesus. You're going to have to deal with them, deal with them publicly. You're intimidated to do it. But remember, God, Jesus, and the good angels are watching you. They're on your team. They're a witness to what's happening. Stand in there without prejudging any of these people. Deal with them forthrightly and do it without partiality. In other words, the biggest giver in the church, the most influential spiritual leader in the church, is to be dealt with with 
his sinfulness in the same way the most uninfluential person in the church would be dealt with with their sinfulness. No partiality. And the third reason is, let me repeat it again, to ensure that there is no duplicity among the leadership. No partiality. Duplicity kills. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the good old boy society. You know, the elders and the pastors, they have their monthly meetings, got their secret handshake. They run this church. They know God's will for this church. You know, we don't know what goes on behind those clothes. Those elders' meetings are really just mysterious. And one of them sins. And so the old boys do what? They watch out for one another. Hey, we're not going to go public with that now. We understand. Oh, man's a man. You know, but no. No partiality. And no prejudging. No protecting of our own. No duplicity as though spiritual leaders have a double standard as though they operate out of the United States Senate. It's no duplicity. It's the same as any other citizen. It's the same as any other Christian in the church. How horrible when spiritual leaders will enter into that hypocritical, duplicitous nature. Fourth word is rebuke. Why is a sinning spiritual leader to be dealt with publicly? He's to be dealt with publicly to create a fear of sin among the leaders and the congregation. It is to safeguard the church's reputation and reduce gossip And it is to ensure that there is no duplicity among the leadership, no partiality. Let's quickly wrap up. Our fifth word is restraint. It's restraint. The question is, who should be appointed to spiritual leadership then? Paul says to Timothy, I want you to show restraint when it comes to appointing. Let's go back to our text. Verse 20 again, just remind it and get a run into it. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, Jesus, and the angels, I charge you to keep these rules. Don't prejudge people, and definitely don't do anything with partiality. Now verse 22, a warning. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I think what Paul is instructing Timothy here is this idea of laying on hands suddenly or early on, immediately. The idea is that as somebody comes into your church, you really like them, they seem really spiritual. And the laying on of hands that he's talking about is, is a public recognition of appointment to ministry or spiritual leadership. It could be an ordination council. It could be the idea of just a public recognition where we gather around, we lay our hands on, and we show our identification with by laying on hands. We show our desire for God to bless them by laying on our hands. We show our approval by laying on our hands. And you see somebody, you say, let's put them in spiritual leadership. They lay hands on in a public manner. Everybody sees it. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to tell you, you need to show restraint. You need to not do that in a hurry. You need to really watch. He's going to give reasons why in just a minute. There's a parenthetical thought. But the question is, who should be appointed to spiritual leadership? Those that we've watched and we know are for real. Because look what he says. Otherwise, you take part in the sins of others. What's his point there? I think what he's saying is that if you appoint someone to the pastorate or to spiritual leadership and they implode and sin and cause problems and you have brought them and affirmed them prematurely, then you are culpable. You are part of the problem. Your your lack of wisdom in appointing someone to spiritual leadership too soon means that you participate in their sinfulness. You've, You've ruined the church. You've impacted negatively the church. And I think that's exactly what he's saying. So show restraint. He says to Timothy in that verse, he says, and keep yourself pure. You don't want to be a part of causing someone else to sin or be responsible for introducing a sinning spiritual leader to your church. Make sure you know who you're talking about there. And Paul uses the word purity there. Do you see that? So keep yourself pure. That brings up the interesting point that there's a parenthetical thought in verse 23. And he says, no longer drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. What the world's that got to do with anything we're talking about right now? And I think here's exactly what happened. I can't prove it. This is Van Marceau's opinion. I'll check when I get to heaven. Paul's writing, or he's, he's um, having written for him, is scripting out as he speaks the words. He has his um, um, hardware menuenza, his scribe, and um, writing. You know how Paul had somebody, often had somebody write for him. 
And he's thinking about this, and he's picturing the church, and he's picturing Ephesus, and he's talking about keeping it pure, and he's talking about dealing with these sinning elders, and he's saying to Timothy, and you be careful to show restraint. Don't lay hands on anybody suddenly, because otherwise you're going you're gonna to be part of their sin. You're going to be appointing somebody that's going to cause sin, and make sure you don't want to be a part of that. You want to keep yourself pure. Oh, speaking of pure, Timothy, you're so concerned about being pure that you've stopped drinking alcohol. You're so concerned about being pure, Timothy, almost to an ascetic type fault that by separating himself from these things of the world, he would not sin. He was drinking only water. He had separated from alcohol and he was sick all the time. And Paul says, knock it off, drink a little alcohol. The alcohol will kill the beasties. It'll cure your stomach. You need to do it. You follow me? That's what I think happened. He said, so keep yourself pure from sin. Oh, you're really concerned about keeping pure from sin. By the way, you're so concerned you stopped drinking alcohol. I want you to drink a little bit. That is not licensed to go out and drink today. We have lots of options besides alcohol. That was a prescription for the medicinal use of alcohol. Right there. In their dirty water day. He goes on to say, and our final word is research. Research. And the question is, how do we know who is to appoint? Excuse me. How do we know who to appoint to spiritual leadership? This is our final question. And we will land very rapidly. Word number six. Research. The question is, how do we know who to appoint to spiritual leadership? The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those who are not cannot remain hidden. I think after his parenthetical thought on alcohol for the stomach's sake, he comes back to finish up his thought about the sinning elders and the appointment of appropriate men to spiritual leadership and the pastorate. And he's saying, I want you to research them carefully. Obviously, the sins of some are wide open and conspicuous. The sins of others, and that's the warning here, you're going to see people who look like they're really good, but it takes a while for their sin to show itself, kind of like a bad egg or a bad apple in a bushel basket, bad potatoes, eventually, eventually it proves itself. There was some rot on the inside. Don't go quickly. Make sure you do your research. And then there's advice as he wraps up and he says, and their good works are conspicuous as well. Don't overlook people who don't have the most obvious of good works. Some people will come in and really show good works and you don't see their sin, but their sin will show itself eventually. Others, you don't see their good works, but their good works are going and eventually it will surface. And I think his point is some of those would make pretty dandy elders. Eventually the good works will surface. Do your research. Vet carefully those who are appointed to spiritual leadership. How do we know who to appoint to to spiritual leadership? Those who have been carefully watched, those who have been carefully observed for a significant length of time so that their bad works or their good works finally come to light. And we know their true colors. And the only way you can know that is by knowing someone for an extended period of time. I think this is helpful teaching. It's kind of technical. It's instructive to the local church. I think it's valuable, as our purpose was for teaching the whole book of 1 Timothy, is that Fellowship Bible Church, if we will take these months and study this instruction about how the local church is to work, it will only preserve us from heartache and grief. It will only strengthen us in the ministry of the gospel. Let me ask three closing questions. Question number one out of our message today. Do you value and honor your spiritual leaders? Do you value and honor your spiritual leaders? I thank you. Many of you are so good about sending notes and words of encouragement. If you are being blessed by your pastors and elders, you need to value that. Don't take it for granted. Secondly, are you praying for your spiritual leaders? Spiritual leaders are capable of sinning. They need your prayer. They need your love. Are you praying regularly for your spiritual leaders? Thirdly, are you listening to your spiritual leaders? You know, I think the greatest joy in a pastor's heart is to receive a note from someone that says, Pastor, I just want to tell you that since I've been attending fellowship, the Word of God has come alive. I've gotten more out of the Word in the last months or years than my whole life. Keep preaching the word. It's valuable. We're growing. We're benefiting. Or to hear the benefit of one of the classes or one of the other pastor's ministries. How valuable that is. Do you know what the greatest thing is? 
I think for me particularly, I feel like I'm not a strong evangelist and I feel like people don't get saved when I preach. Every once in a while I'll receive a note or I'll hear a testimony and someone will say, it was such and such a time and I was sitting in my seat and I'd been attending fellowship for so long and at the end of the message, I bowed my head and I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I confessed my sin before a holy God I, by faith, took the finished work of Christ to be for me. And I took his righteousness and I dumped off my sinfulness. And that happened at the end of the message. And it was so life-changing. There's no greater joy to a pastor and to the elders to hear that their people are walking in the truth. That the word of God is impacting lives. Do you value your spiritual leaders? Are you praying for your spiritual leaders? Are you listening Some of you listen week in and week out and you know you need to make changes and you're not. Some of you listen week in and week out and you know you need to surrender the old man and you need to accept this pure, clean drink of water gospel, the forgiveness that's in Christ. Today might be the day. Bow your head, please. Will you take a minute and just pray for our church and pray for our leaders in your own heart? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, right now is the time for you to look to God and say that you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and and that you want by faith to accept for you the forgiveness of sin, that Jesus was your sin bearer and he substituted in your place and he died for your sin. And By faith, you can have forgiveness in the presence of a holy God and restoration, become his child. Right now, by faith, you can take that step and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that God raised him from the dead and be saved. Will you pray for your spiritual leaders or will you be saved right now? Father, thank you for this instruction from Paul to Timothy to us. Father, I pray that we would take it to heart. I pray that you would preserve the integrity, the purity the ministries of our pastors and our elders. I thank you for their faithfulness, each one of them. I thank you for the stability that we've experienced through the years because you've raised up godly men to serve, qualified men to serve. Father, if there's any seekers here today, I pray that they would see Christ in a new light and recognize that Transformation of life, forgiveness of sin only comes by grace from you through faith in the work of Christ at the cross. Father, would you call out men in our church today into spiritual leadership? Would you work in their hearts and call them to a higher level of living to serve you in the eldership or the pastorate? Father, would you call out from among us those who need to be saved, break their hearts and open their eyes to the truth of your word? Father, would you help us as a church to live in such a way that there's no sin, there's nothing between us and you, nothing to spoil your favor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.